you don't know me, I'm Greg Swanson. I'm going to uh, speak today on our series, Who Am I? Next week, Pastor Scott starts a new series called Says Who? Uh, he'll have to explain that to you when, uh, when you come next week. Well, I'm glad to be with you here today. Uh, I used to be in the, in the corporate world. Uh, back in those days, I was greatly impacted by a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. The book is about, it's about 15 years old now, but uh, what it teaches about what it takes for a company to go from being a good company to a great company is timeless. Uh, Still plays very well today. Uh, The author, Collins, studied, he studied in intricate detail 1,435 companies and um, analyzed them to determine um, what made 11 of them different. What allowed 11 of them to achieve greatness while the others did not? And um, it was incredibly impactful to the business world uh, because it revealed that what business schools and what the business world assumed was essential to becoming great was just plain wrong. It was myth. And as I studied the scripture for this message today, I, uh, which includes Jesus teaching his disciples that what they believed about becoming great was just plain wrong, I contemplated what would I have thought if I were in their shoes and um, what does the world think? What, what do we believe it takes for a person to be great? How does an athlete, a musician, a scientist, an educator, an executive, how do they get to the pinnacle of their endeavor, where they're, where they're just truly admired and respected and influential? And some of the things that came to my mind are things like, well, extraordinary talent, uh, confidence, charisma, uh, a number of other things. And I'm sure if we brainstormed as a group, we'd, we'd put together a pretty good list. But I, I also think that we would be surprised to discover what it truly takes to be great. Researchers in uh, recent years have applied to people what Jim Collins did for businesses, for companies. And um, uh, they, they have studied hundreds and hundreds of people who have reached the highest levels. And they have analyzed what allowed them to get there. What makes them different? So through that research, we've got a pretty clear idea now Uh, what it takes for a person to become great in this world, across all kinds of endeavors. It's amazingly consistent. And uh, like what Collins' book did for uh, the business world, uh, the results show that some of what we might be thinking about greatness is just just plain wrong. Uh, It's just myths. And uh, I want us to take a closer look at those today first, 
because I think it's going to help us to grasp what Jesus had to say uh, in our scripture today. The path for a person to become great in this world starts with passion. The path, the path to greatness is not an easy one. Uh, we have to love something or love someone enough to endure the really difficult things. Albert Einstein said, Only one who devotes himself to a cause with his whole strength and soul can be a true master. For this reason, mastery demands all of a person. See, we have to, we have to care about it enough to give it everything we have or give that person, everything we have. One of the greatest baseball players of all time, uh, Carl Yastrzemski, in the Hall of Fame, he did, tried to describe his passion um, when he said, I think about baseball when I wake up in the morning. I think about it all day, and I dream about it at night. The only time I don't think about it is when I'm playing it. Now, we might think that baseball is maybe a silly thing to be that passionate about, but the kind of passion that he is showing here is the kind of passion that is needed for any kind of greatness, baseball or otherwise. The second essential in the path to greatness is humility. We, we have to know that we are not great right now. And because we understand that, we show up every day to work at it. That is essential. The great musician and composer, Vladimir Horowitz, who many consider to be the greatest pianist of all time, said, if I don't practice for a day, I know it. If I don't practice for two days, my wife knows it. If I don't practice for three days, the world knows it. Practice, practice, practice. In golf, there's this idea of having touch around the greens. Any golfers in here? If you guess if you're golfers, you'd probably be out golfing right now on this beautiful day. Yeah. But there's this idea of touch around the green, which is, uh, which is uh, landing the ball just gently enough on the green and in just the right spot that it will roll as close to the hole as possible, if not go in. That's touch. And those that can do that extremely well, they're admired for their natural touch. Well, Hall of Fame golfer Lee Trevino said, there is no such thing as natural touch. Touch is something you create by hitting millions of golf balls. A third essential on the path to greatness is sacrifice. Researchers, the researchers call this deliberate practice. It's the, it's the key thing. It's the key thing that separates the great from the good. Deliberate practice, which takes sacrifice. So what it is, is it's highly structured activities that are designed specifically to deal with your deficiencies. In other words, we have to relentlessly work at the most difficult, the most unpleasant, and sometimes the most painful things 
Dr. Frank Niles illustrates this with a story of Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was many, he was many things, but he was probably greatest as a writer. He was a great writer, but he wasn't always a great writer. Niles says, chided by his father for writing letters to a friend that lacked eloquence, Franklin desperately wanted to improve his writing. He developed a rigorous training regimen that included transcribing from memory passages from famous works and then putting them in his own words. He, he was doing deliberate practice before the researchers had come up with a name for it. Uh, the, research, the research is amazingly consistent across all fields of endeavor that, that 10,000 hours of deliberate practice over a 10-year period is the minimum that it takes to become great. And we see this in today's great athletes. They understand this very well. Um, they receive analysis on every aspect of their performance. And, um, and those that become great work relentlessly on the areas that need improvement. This is the kind of sacrifice that it, that's the big difference between those who are just good and those who become great. The willingness to sacrifice. What we don't see in these results on this path to greatness is extraordinary gifting. That's probably the most surprising outcome. The idea that we have to be especially gifted to become great is a myth. The reality is greatness is available to each and every one of us. Now, all of this has to do with greatness in the world, greatness to, in the world's standards, of course. I'm sure that none of the research had to do with being a great disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, but that's really not necessary, uh, though, because since we're going to see in our scripture today that Jesus tells us what it takes to be great in the eyes of God. And we're also going to see, like so often happens, that um, what we're now finding to be true through all this scientific method was right there in God's word all the time. So we're going to be in the book of Matthew. It's the first book in the latter part of your Bible that we refer to as the New Testament. Uh, our main scripture is going to be from chapter 20. Uh, this is late in Jesus' ministry. Uh, he, he and the 12 disciples are on the road to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, Jesus knows that is going to be where his earthly ministry ends in a terrible way. Now, we also know that greatness is one of the things that is on the mind of the disciples as they are on this road, just a little bit prior to um, our scripture in, in uh, chapter 20. The disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child 
is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, so Jesus has begun to teach them about greatness. And, uh, and he, what he tells them here is, first, unless you have passion, he says, unless you turn, he says, turn away from everything else and trust in me like the kind of trust a child has. Unless you do that, you won't even be there. And he, and he says you have to have humility. Unless you, unless you do, you have, to, you, you have to have the humility like this child. A child who knows he needs help and knows he cannot live on his own. That's the kind of humility you have to have. So evidently they are mulling this over because a little further down the road, two of his disciples, James and John, approached Jesus with their mother. And, uh, and this is the scripture that we're going to focus on today, Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it is but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, the other ten disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now first, I know it probably seems odd that the mother of James and John is involved here. We don't know if James and John put her up to it, or, uh, or the reverse, if this was her idea. But what we do see is that James and John are right there. And when Jesus addresses them, they jump at the opportunity. So uh, they're, they're not opposed to this, for sure. They were wanting to take a shortcut to greatness. They, they had passion. They had turned to Jesus. And they had humility to know that they needed to walk with Jesus. They're, they're walking with him every day, seeing and hearing and learning. They were trudging along this road, uh, though, and now they want to bypass the sacrifice part in the path to greatness. That's such a problem, common problem, isn't it? It's a win-now, American Idol kind of mentality. Uh, I, I, I've really enjoyed the show American Idol over the years. 
Um, but it bugs me when the teen and 20-something contestants have the attitude of, I've worked so hard for this, if I don't win this, my career is going to be over. My life will be destroyed. No. <laughs> you could take the path to greatness that virtually every other great person has taken, rather than the shortcut. I don't blame James and John. They're, they're doing it the way they thought it had to be done, right? That's, that's the way it is in the world. Uh, get aggressive. Look out for number one. Use your charisma. In their case, they appear to be going to the uh, use your connections strategy. Most Bible scholars agree that from other scripture, we can deduce that the mother is actually Jesus' aunt, which makes James and John Jesus' cousins. So they're not only playing the connections card, they're playing the family card to take their shortcut. My brother, one of my brothers, is uh, assistant sergeant at arms for operations in the U.S. Senate. And it so frustrates him that he is constantly having to deal with requests from senators and other elected officials to place their unqualified nieces and nephews in management positions at the Capitol building. Now, perhaps these people are passionate about rising to a high-ranking government position, and perhaps they have the humility to accept that they need help to get there, but each one of them skips the sacrifice part on the path to greatness not understanding it or, or not being willing to make the sacrifices required. James and John were only doing what many of us would assume uh, is the way to make it to the top. But the, the research makes it clear they were wrong about that. Jesus didn't need the research. They also got it wrong when they assumed that greatness looks the same in the kingdom of heaven as it does in the world. Jesus sets them straight on that, too. He sets all 12 of them straight, for that matter, because the other 10 were no different than James and John. They were just slower. <laughs> we, we know that in a couple of ways. Uh, verse 24 says that the other 10 were indignant at the two brothers. They were, they were really mad at the two brothers, as opposed to being compassionate, like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, you guys were out sick that day we covered greatness with Jesus, so let, let us help you get up to speed. It wasn't that at all. They were mad at him because they beat him to the punch. And the other evidence we see is that Jesus felt the need to call all of them to him, not just James and John. He's teaching all of them. So the other 12 needed to learn this just like all of us need to learn it. You do not know what you are asking, he tells James and John. He's saying you're, you're asking to be treated as the greatest among the 12, and you think that you get that by being the fastest, the most aggressive, the best connected, but it doesn't work that way. 
says, indeed, I will come into my kingdom. And indeed, there, there will be places of honor. They talked about this just, just a little further back on the road. In chapter 19, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus says that he will be in the place of highest honor. And he doesn't deny to James and John that, uh, that there will be thrones and that there will be thrones to his right and to his left. That will, and that those are positions of higher honor than the others. He doesn't deny that. But he explains that he gets to the place of honor through humility and through sacrifice. Let's, let's make sure we see where he, how he's saying that. He says, he says that I, he's saying, I must be humble in submitting to my father. He's the one who decides who has the placest of higher honor, not me. He's the one. And I came here to live among men, and hence the name Son of Man that Jesus uses for himself. I came here to live among men, not to be served, but to humbly serve. And about sacrifice, he says, I must sacrifice by drinking the cup that my Father has given me. I will even sacrifice myself, giving my life up for you and all those who are to be saved. That's the path, he says. That's the path. You can't bypass the sacrifice part. Can you drink the cup I am to drink? He asks them. We are able, James and John reply, and I'm sure each of the 12 disciples would reply in the same way. So Jesus, in effect, says, well, then let's talk about passion because you're going to need it and you're going to need to get it right. He tells them that here in the world, the great ones, the rulers, the ones that have reached the pinnacle, that have the most influence over others, they lord it over them. They exercise authority by giving orders and forcing others to serve them. What they're passionate about is putting themselves in that position of power and influence. Putting themselves there. It shall not be so among you, Jesus tells them. He says, in my kingdom it takes a servant to be great. So much of what Jesus taught is just the opposite of what the world understands or what the world believes, right? His kingdom is the opposite kingdom. If you ever watched the show Seinfeld, you might remember an episode where George, the character George, who is perennially unemployed and uh, unhappy, uh, he discovers that he's so much better off if he just does the opposite of whatever his instincts tell him to do. And life's starting to look really good for him. And sometimes I wonder if that is not such a silly idea. 
Jesus' kingdom is the opposite kingdom. While the passion of the world is to make oneself great, Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. You are to be the servants of one another and thereby being servants of God. He says, just like I am a servant. And as a servant of God, my passion is to show the world the greatness of God. Earlier in his ministry, when his disciples asked him to teach them to pray, he taught them, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's telling them that it's the glory of God that matters. That is the way it should be among you. So so Jesus teaches that the path to greatness is, is remarkably like what it has taken the world a couple of thousand years and a lot of great research to figure out. The path is passion, humility, and sacrifice. But he teaches us a huge distinction between worldly greatness and greatness in God's eyes. To be great in the kingdom of heaven requires being passionate about the glory of God, not my personal glory. Now, our scripture does not say that great in the world is bad. I want to make that perfectly clear. It does say that abusing your influence, lording it over others, uh, lording your authority over others, and putting yourself on a pedestal, those are problems. But you can be great in your field of endeavor and great in the eyes of God both. I think perhaps... uh, Russell Wilson, the great quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks, may be an example of that. Russell Wilson considers, considers himself to be a Christian who happens to be a quarterback, rather than a quarterback who happens to practice religion. And many of, many of, many of you here in this room and listening to this message, you may be great in your various endeavors. You may be great in your profession or great in a hobby. You may be a great parent, a great child, a great student. All of those things are good. Scripture does tell us, though, that you can't be a servant of that and a servant of God both. Jesus said no servant can serve two masters. Being a servant means that we are making whatever or whoever that we are a servant to, that is the master, we're making that master the focus. The master is the most important thing. Everything else is secondary. And the problem comes when we, when we um, make being great in the world our master. when we make it the top priority. There can only be one top priority. So you have to make a choice to who or what you will serve. You have to make that choice. So what do you choose? 
And that's a serious question that, that I want each of us to think about. I, I, I'm not looking for just the church correct answer. Because we show what our choice is every day in the way that we live, in the priorities we set in our life. We show it. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter if we say one thing and do another. I'd like to briefly make the case for making the choice to be a servant of God. I'm just going to give you a couple of reasons in the time we have. First, serving nothing is not an option. I said a moment ago that Scripture teaches that we cannot serve two masters. It also teaches that we cannot serve zero masters. An example of that is the description of how the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came into the promised land of Israel. Uh, They had come into the land and occupied it, and their leader, Joshua, was near the end of his life, and he gave them a final speech. And in it, he seemed to sense that some of them may have been seeing this great new place and maybe seeing the successes they have been having and um, uh, you know, that they may have been tempted to no longer make serving God the priority. And he says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. In other words, not serving something was not an option. And we see that lived out among the Israelites, that truth kept coming back to them during the, the multiple periods where they chose to not serve the Lord, they always ended up serving something. Usually the supposed gods that were around them or some other selfish desires that they were tempted to. They always served something. Second, a second uh, reason to choose to be God's servant is that being a servant of God is rewarding forever. Definitely being great in the world has some benefits, uh, but it also has some problems. For one, as we have seen, there is no easy path to greatness. No matter what your passion is, it still requires humility and sacrifice to achieve greatness, contrary to what many believe. Another problem is that worldly greatness is always temporary. Uh, How often do you see a where-are-they-now kind of segment about celebrities or article about celebrities? Professional athletes, uh, which we we consider to be so great in our uh, society, have an amazingly short time in the limelight. Professional football players, uh, their average playing career is three and a half years. Uh, baseball, it's five and a half years. Professional basketball players, it's less than five years. Even if you manage to stay on top for most of your life, your life's going to end. 
On the other hand, being a servant of God leads to eternal rewards. Faith alone is what saves us. Faith alone saves us, and we are saved for something great. Jesus said uh, in John chapter 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Life with God is going to be full. But in addition to that full life, God plans to reward us according to the sacrifices we make. After all, he created us to be motivated by rewards. And uh, he created us to, to want to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Throughout Scripture, God tells us of the rewards that he has in mind for us, that he offers for his servants. Here, when James and John asked for the positions of honor, Jesus, Jesus didn't deny that there were such positions. And he didn't rebuke them for asking them for them. In fact, it brings God pleasure to reward us for our faithfulness and our obedience. In Matthew chapter 25, a few chapters after this, Jesus tells a parable about a faithful servant, and the master happily tells the servant, you have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. I will reward you, in other words. Come and share your master's happiness. It makes the master happy to reward. God has big plans and rewards for his servants. It's okay to be excited about that. In closing, I, I want to bring up one of our ministry interns, Malia Berlin, to come up and read for us Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, which I just think these verses beautifully sum up much of what we're talking about today. Um, Philippians um, 2, 3 through 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interest, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every, na every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." To the glory of God the Father, let us choose to be servants of God. Let us choose to be great in God's eyes. Let me invite you to bow with me as I pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, we, uh, we are so grateful for your word on this. We are so grateful for you revealing to us the difference between being great in your eyes and great in this world. And Lord, we, we ask you to lead us there.
Help us to know what it is to be your servant. Help us to choose to be that. And help us to start that today. Father, I thank you for hearing this prayer, and I thank you for being with us in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.